part of what made me um, reflect on this theme is that I've been doing a little bit of troubleshooting, um, um, consulting, if you will, with a spiritual center that's in a great deal of conflict, where the players, the boards, and teachers, and you know, key members and so forth are all at one another's throats, threatening to sue one another and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> all in a very spiritual fashion, right? Um, because spiritual life doesn't grant you immunity from humanity. In fact, all it does is reveal the nature of humanity so that your heart of compassion and understanding will really open. And one of the questions that I asked the key players that I talked to in the midst of this particular melodrama, you know how those melodramas go. You've been in them, I know you have, right? Personally and familiarly and communally. The key question is, as they were talking to one another and, you know, arguing and getting back together, back and forth with one another, is, what is your deepest intention? Is it to be right? Or is it to love? Is it to cling to your point of view? Or is it to listen deeply, understand another point of view as well? Because the intention that we carry into a situation, more than anything else, determines the karma that we make. Karma actually is the, the, the simplest translation of the word, um, is action or intention in, from Sanskrit. The intention that we bring is what will actually determine the fruits of that action on our part. We don't get to control other people. But our intention has an enormous power. And depending what intention we bring to a situation, we will get all different kinds of results. So the understanding of the intention of the heart, and more deeply the purpose behind our actions when we listen, what makes us act and in what way, is a um, is an expression of our awakening when we have an understanding of that. Um, it is a place to know how to act wisely in the world. So the Buddhist texts begin the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Um, speak or act within impure mind or heart, and sorrow will follow you as surely as the cart follows, the wheel of the cart follows the oxen who draws it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. All things are born out of mind and heart. Speak and act with a pure heart or mind, and happiness will follow you as closely as your own shadow. Someone calculated that we think on the average 17,000 thoughts a day. If you pay attention even a little bit, you'll notice that most of them are reruns, right? <laughs> it's true, you know, they're in, they've been in rerun for a long time this season. Um, and mostly our intentions aren't so terribly clear. And yet underneath, the patterns of thoughts and intentions determine what happens to us. There's a story of a, 
Eskimo um, Indian who went to the uh, missionary priest in his village and, s and asked him kind of a theological question for the church. If you had not um, told us about Jesus and God and sin, then would we still go to hell? And the priest said, no, not if you didn't know about this. And then he looked at him quite earnestly and said, then why did you tell us? <laughs> the kind of beliefs we have, the thoughts we have, determine how we enter a situation and what happens within it. You remember this little anecdote that uh, Sir James Mackenzie, Sir Richard Mackenzie, excuse me, in 1886 um, brought a paper rose under glass to an asthma patient he was treating who was severely allergic to asthma, uh, to, to uh, roses, and pulled the um, glass bell off the top of the paper rose and she immediately went into a full-blown asthma attack. Even there, there was no scent at all from the rose. But just seeing it was enough, just thinking that it was a rose was enough. The father, he, he's considered the, one of the fathers of mind-body medicine. The power of our mind and our intentions, and the power of the mind itself to create the forms of our culture and civilization, all the things that we do, both the benevolent forms of traffic lights where people stop and let someone else have a chance to go, you know, and the forms of our economic commerce and so forth. And on the other hand, the same mind which can um, be directed toward the creation of enemies, racism, um, aggression, uh, depending how we think, and what our intention is, so the world will unfold for us. And in meditation, you get to observe it in a little kind of microscopic way, especially when you're on retreat. You begin to notice the intention when you're about to eat or when you're about to move, that there's always an intention before action. Um, and if we're not aware of the intention, then we just become caught in habit. So, for example, if you smoke cigarettes and you decide, I'm going to stop smoking, okay, I quit for the whatever time it is, the 50th time, I quit. Um, and then something happens that's stressful in the day, and you find yourself um, a little while later, without noticing it, having picked up the cigarettes, taken one out of the pack, put it in your mouth, lit it, and inhaling, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I was going to quit smoking. Right? But the habit is so strong that it carries us along until some moment of recognition. Oh, right, I had set that intention, but I wasn't really so aware, and then it all happened again. And in the training of awakening, we begin to listen to the intention before action, and listen to the play of the thoughts that direct how we express ourselves in life, because as they're repeated, so they become our habit. A young man sat at the dinner table. What did you have in school today, his father asked the teenage boy. Oh, we had lectures on sex, was the reply. Hmm, lectures on sex, and what did they tell you? Well, first there was a priest who told us why we shouldn't, then there was a doctor 
told us how we shouldn't, and finally the principal gave us a talk on where we shouldn't. <laughs> but what we put our attention into intention to begins to become repeated, becomes the habit, becomes the way. And we live in a culture that I find to be um, so egregiously uh, celebratory of violence in our media and in our um, entertainment and, in, of course, in our foreign policy and so forth. And I remember this cartoon that I clipped out of the New Yorker one year that showed a couple of generals striding down the hall at the Pentagon with all their bars and medals and stuff. And one said to the other, it really shook me, you know, I dreamed that the meek inherited the earth, right? <laughs> Now, in the Buddhist tradition, the stories are told that one can set the direction of one's life or many lives through this quality of intention or a vow. So, as the myth is told, um, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, had met a Buddha, Dipankara Buddha was his name, a hundred thousand Mahakalpas of time before this current age, and saw this radiant, compassionate being and said, I want to follow this path. I would like to be a Buddha who radiates compassion and love throughout the whole world, and I will do whatever it takes. I hereby set this vow, this intention, to do whatever is necessary to fulfill the qualities of a Buddha in my own heart. And after a hundred thousand of Mahakalpas of practice of patience and compassion and truthfulness and wisdom and loving-kindness and so forth, and for additional immensities he became a Buddha, at least as the story was told. And traditionally, again, as you read these stories, the, all the myths and stories are filled with people making vows or intentions to create something beautiful <laughs> of their lives, an aspiration, a directed intention. Now, one of the favorite children's stories in the lineage um, for expressing the power of this intention, this is kind of your bedtime story part of tonight's uh, lecture. Once a long time ago, when you were much younger than you are, um, the Buddha was born as a parrot in a great forest, great jungle. And this parrot befriended many of the animals, the monkeys and the lions and the various other creatures, large and small, of the forest um, in a benevolent way. And they lived together until one year when there was very little rain. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the dry season, there was a thunder cloud that came, but without water. And the lightning struck the forest and a great fire began, and the whole forest started to burn, as is told in this children's tale. And as the forest fire grew, all the animals began to run, the deer as fast as they could, the lions and tigers as fast as they could, toward the river, through the river to the other side of the river, and even the little creatures, the little mice and the little voles and the squirrels and all the things that lived in the ground began to run as fast as they could. But they didn't run, in many cases, as fast as the flames were spreading. 
And the parrot looked around this forest, now the fire burning enormous, and thought, what can I do? I am very small. I can't do very much. But then she saw her friends um, running and, in many cases, suffering from the smoke and the flames and the fire. So she flew to the river and dived herself into the water, got water on her feathers, and flew back through the smoke and flames and would find some small friend and, you know, a little mouse or a squirrel or something and shake herself on the squirrel or the mouse to give them a little bit of water and respite as they tried to outrun the fire. And then she would go back to the river, dunk herself in again and fly through the flames and look for another friend in the, in the edge of the fire and drop the rain, the drops of water. Now, as it happens in these kind of stories, it said that uh, great gods were having a celebratory dinner in the heavens. Um, and all of a sudden, this strange sensation came over the Brahma god who was there hosting the others. Um, something strange is going on down on, down an earth plane. And so he kind of leaned over and looked down. And there he saw this parrot trying to help his friends and put out the forest fire by dunking himself herself into the river and, and flying back over and over. It seemed like complete folly. But strangely, he was moved by this and he thought, I must inquire further. And so looking further, as the gods do, he tumbled out of the heavenly feast and fell down through the air and found himself turning into a great eagle and flying down to check out the scene in the, great, in the jungle below. Flew all the way down to the jungle and began to fly alongside the parrot who had just gone in the river and was finding another mouse to shake or raccoon to shake the water on. Flying alongside and said, um, you know, this is a forest fire. You've got to get this straight. Um, a few drops of water are not going to stop this forest fire. You know, what do you think you're doing? And the tired parrot said, you know, I, this isn't the point where I really need a lot of advice, thank you. I kept flying along. <laughs> shook the water back to the river, get more water on her feathers, flew back over, find another animal, and the eagle's flying along saying, but you know, I mean, so you say one or two creatures, thousands are going to burn, what's the difference it's going to make? And she looked at him and said, you know, um, I really don't need advice at this point. If there's some other help you might offer, that would be all right, but... Um, uh, I have to do what I can do. These are, this is my forest. These are, this is my community. And even if I can help one being, I will do so. And she flew and shook herself and back in the river. And he went along with her, kind of trying to dissuade her that this task was folly. And she said, no, you have to understand this little creature. And she flew down to another little mouse and shook off one. This is a friend of mine, and this is a brother, and this is a sister of mine. I have to help everyone I can panting, covered with dust and, and the, the smoke of the fire. And somehow as the great eagle flew along and watched her almost exhausted, almost taken over by the smoke herself and still doing this, it touched his heart. He saw here somebody sacrificing themselves in what seems like an impossible situation. And yet she said, I must do this. And he watched her closely with just such nobility, this parrot, 
who was really the Buddha. And his heart cracked open a little bit more, and he began to weep at seeing the suffering of these beings and the struggle to, of compassion to help them. And as a few tears rolled down the cheeks of this great eagle, clouds began to form because it was actually Brahma God, right? And then as a few more tears rolled down the cheeks of this great bird, all of a sudden the sky broke into a great storm and rain fell out of the clouds because when the gods weep, the clouds weep with them. And it landed on the forest fire and gradually everything was put out. (sighs) Said the old parrot, yeah, boy, that was difficult. (laughs) And she landed by the stream and the eagle landed by her and bowed to her and said, you are a great being, you are a small being indeed, and it seemed like you could do nothing, but you, you, indeed you are a great being because you have a great heart. And something beautiful will come of who you are, I know this. Bowed and kind of paid his birdly respect in whatever way and <laughs> flew back up to heaven. Um, and that's sort of the end of the story as it's told to children in India now it's time, you know, to go to sleep or whatever. Um, And you can see, I mean, children listen and they know because they're small. And they know that even though they're small in body, that to be small in body doesn't mean that the spirit is small, doesn't mean that the heart is small. And when they hear the story, they realize that what matters is what is carried in here. Mother Teresa, somebody was saying, you know, how did you do all these fantastic things in the world, all these places that you've opened and followed you and so forth? And she said, I didn't intend to do fantastic things. There was a person dying on the street where I was living, and I picked up one person and brought him in to be cared for, and then I picked up another, you know. And because I picked up one person, I picked up 42,000 people. But it was just one at a time each person that I met, that I was able to help. And that's all it is. If you set your heart the right intention, it's one and one and one and one. Gandhi, who puts it this way, I claim to be no more than an average person with less than average ability. Imagine that. And I have not the shadow of a doubt that any man or woman can achieve what I have if he or she would simply make the same effort and cultivate the same hope and faith. So this quality of paying attention to the deepest direction or intention, jaitana it's called in Buddhist psychology, and it's a neutral quality intention. It can be associated with means the will to do. It can be associated with doing things that are unskillful or harmful, or it can be associated with that which is noble and beautiful, those intentions that are the expression of our true nature. And the whole of the Buddhist teachings of how one lives a wise or enlightened life come from these kind of vows. Now it's interesting my good friend Ajahn Sumedho, who is an abbot in England now and has been a monk for 35 or 40 years, went to England first as a monk after spending 10 years with our teacher Ajahn Chah in the forests of Thailand. And then they got an invitation to come from the British uh, Buddhist Society, or one of the British Buddhist societies. So Ajahn Chah, this old forest master, 
and a couple of his Western monks went to England and gave some teachings to the British Buddhist Society. And then the society said, we would like to invite some of your monks to stay here, kind of paid their respect. And so Sumedho and one other monk were invited to stay, and they were given a little dark apartment in the middle of London on a noisy street. And Sumedho said, he said, you know, it was tough. I'd been living in this glorious, you know, huge old forest with ancient teak trees and little huts in the caves in the mountains like you get in those Chinese scroll paintings. And here I am on some, you know, noisy street, horns honking, and it's London, you know, and a little tiny apartment. But I was a monk, what to do? And my teacher, while he was there, said we should go out every morning with our alms bowl. And Ajahn Sumedho said, why would we do that here? No one knows to put food in our bowls. And Ajahn Sah says, well, then we will teach them, right? Maybe this is a country that doesn't know about mendicants and bowls, but, you know, some of them might ask, and then we can tell them. How else will they learn? And Sumedho said, but it might take years. And Ajahn Chah just smiled, you know. Years, centuries, however long it takes, just set your intention. So they would go out with their alms bowl, and they got almost nothing. They ran into children once in a while who would, you know, these strange bald guys with bowls and stuff. And they got to know one kid in the neighborhood, one little girl who came up one morning, ran up and put in a candy bar and a couple of things like that. Next morning, she looked in to see if she could get a candy bar back. But that's <laughs> so when Ajahn Chah was leaving, um, they said, please leave your Western monks. And Sumedho and his other monk friend were left there. And Ajahn Chah said to him, now you must go out with your alms bowl every day. And Sumedho said, every day? Why do I have to do this? And people don't put anything in the bowl. And he said, well, for one thing, it's your job as a monk to educate people about mendicants in this way. And there's a second reason. He said, remember that when the Buddha was still a prince in the myth, in the story, he went out from the palace and he saw what were called the heavenly messengers. He saw a sick person, said to his charioteer, to whom does this happen? The charioteer shook his head and said, to everyone, sire. Okay. Hmm. And then a little later, he saw a person who was very, very old. To whom does this happen, this aging, you know, no gray and no hair and bent over and shaky? And the charioteer said, to everyone, sire, if they're lucky. Hmm. Okay. And then he saw, for the first time, a corpse, a dead body. Remember the first time you saw a dead body? It's a really remarkable thing. He said, to whom does this happen, sire? Well, to everyone, sir. To everyone. Oh, it's kind of a shock. Everyone. No one is exempt. That, of course, gave him pause. And then the fourth of the heavenly messengers, as he was out with his charioteer, was that he saw a mendicant, a monk, with an alms bowl walking across a field at some distance. And he said, and who is that? And the charioteer said, that is a holy man. That is a sadhu or a monk or a yogi who has left the worldly life to devote himself or herself to finding the liberation from the sorrows of this world. And seeing that gave the Buddha, the, in, this, in his life, the intention, oh, I will do the same thing. I will seek the liberation of the heart in the midst of this world, the liberation of the heart, the freedom or enlightenment in 
you know, from the, the sorrows and, and difficulties of this world. So then Ajahn Chah looked at, looked at Sumedho and said, so there's another reason why you go out every morning with your bowl. He said, you are one of the four heavenly messengers. And you don't know who's standing out there on the street corners in London, but someone may need to see you. So take your bowl out every morning and go. So Sumedho went out every morning, week after week, you know, and walked through Hyde Park part of the time and whatever. And one morning he was out there with his bowl, still had gotten almost nothing put in the bowl, but he would do it because his teacher told him to. And an older English gentleman came jogging by and stopped and said, what are you? And Sumedho said, well, um, I'm a forest monk from Thailand. And uh, the man said, well, a forest a monk? Hmm? Doesn't look like much of a forest around here. What are you doing here? And Ajahn Sumedho explained. He said, well, I came with my teacher, invitation of the Buddhist society, but all they had to offer us was a little flat, you know, down the street over there. Um, and we monks take whatever is offered. And the man asked a few more questions about the forest and how the monks lived in it, listened politely, and said, well, you know, I have a forest. He said, I have a lovely forest. Hammerwood is its name down in Kent or wherever it was in one of the fancy parts of England. And I've been thinking about what to do with the forest. He said, would it be all right if, you give, if I give you this forest? And <laughs> he took a piece of paper and wrote down, I would like to donate forest Hammerwood to the forest monks of your order and put it in Ajahn Sumedha's bowl. So there he was. He didn't get, he got one candy bar, you know. And then, I don't know, a hundred acres of the most beautiful forest in that part of South England. So somehow it's a story about intention. Yes? And the willingness that we have to set an intention of the heart in small things and in large ones to really listen and say, what is it that matters? What will express this wisdom and compassion that is within me? And in the days of the monastery, the monks and nuns would begin by chanting praise to the Buddha, to see the Buddha nature in every being, praise to the Dharma, praise to the Sangha, to the community of all awakening together, um, and reflections on our true nature, on the impermanence of life, how life is very short, um, on the fact that the only real certainty is that you will die, and the only real uncertainty is when. <laughs> That's how it is. You know, as Carlos Castaneda said to uh, Don Juan at one point, death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient or uncertain is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of him, or you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. And so we would do these reflections on the brevity of life, on death, on uh, the value of living a life that is devoted to seeing the Buddha nature in every being. And then we would do dedications for that day, for that week, for, that, for our practice. 
that we might seek to express compassion in every way we could, that we would look for that freedom of heart to be expressed in every circumstance. And it wasn't easy. A monk's life isn't any easier than any other life. It sounds kind of, you get fed and it's peaceful and things like that. It turns out it's not so. It's hot and it's cold and there's mosquitoes and there's the guy who lives in the cottage next to you who's really difficult, you know, either talkative or sullen, you know, or doesn't like you or farts and belches all the time and, you know, takes this piggy with the food. And it's just human relations. It's just a community of people like any other. You know, and the worst part of it is you have your own mind to deal with. There you are in this idyllic setting and you're sitting there and you're doing reruns, right? I mean, I would sit in my little hut and commercials would come on <laughs> from television. A lot of them. <laughs> the thought leads to the deeds. The deeds create habit. The habit hardens into character. And the character shapes our world. So watch the ways of the thoughts and intentions with care and see that they spring of love for all beings. So in this practice, you begin to notice the movements of mind, the habitual karma, if you will. And you also begin to notice the intentions that come. How is it that I want to use the life that's been given to me? And I know when I would go out with my begging bowl in the morning, walk those little dikes between the rice paddies to a village in the, just at sunrise, and people would put food in your bowl. And sometimes we were very poor. We didn't get a lot of food. And then someone would put like a mango in my bowl. And I'd get really excited, this kind of, you know how it is when the food comes and you're really hungry. And it's like, oh, yes. Um, but of course, you can't say anything. You have to look good anyway, even though you're getting excited inside. So, okay, I'm going to look peaceful as a monk and just carry my bowl. But thank you for that mango, honey. You know, that's... <sighs> but because you couldn't say anything, and sometimes people who are very poor would put food in your bowl, where that food meant a lot to them. You know, and here I come from a culture where there's so much abundance. You go into the supermarket or anywhere, there's so much abundance. And I couldn't say thank you for that, for that sacrifice, because to them you represent the spirit, that the culture stays alive because there are people who are willing to dedicate their lives to compassion and freedom and awakening all the time. So they really want to support that. They want it as part of their village and their life. All I could do was go back to the monastery because you can't say a word to them and say, all right, let me eat this food and take their offering and make something beautiful of it for this day. And the way that we live then becomes our habit, our practice, our character. I know when I was sitting with my father as he was dying because he was so frightened and paranoid and had such a hard time when he was dying, that was how he'd lived. And so it wasn't a surprise. As I say, I've told this story. I tried to teach him meditation, but 15 minutes of meditation instruction doesn't counteract 75 years of practicing paranoia. It just doesn't. You actually need some practice and training. And it's not just for dying, as you know, but it's for love relationships. And Thanksgiving, you know, that's coming up with your family in many cases, right? You know how that goes, or whatever. 
or the difficulties that come in your life. What will you make of those difficulties? This is from a 10-year-old. My teacher asked me to write this. Why are we born was a really hard question to answer. At first, for a long time, I couldn't think of anything, but now I think of something to say. I think God made us each born for different reasons. He doesn't want us to do the same thing, so that's why he makes us all so different. If God gives you a great voice, maybe he wants you to sing. Or if God wants you to be a farmer, he might give you to a family that lives on a farm so you get used to the animals and you're not afraid of them. And maybe if God makes you grow to be seven feet tall, maybe he wants you to play for the Lakers or the Celtics, right? (laughs) When my friend Kim died from her cancer, I asked my mom if God was going to make Kim die when she was only six. Why did he get her born at all? But my mom said even though she was only six, she changed people's lives. And what that means is like her brother or sister could be the scientist that discovers the cure for cancer, and they decided to do that because of Kim. And like me too, I used to wonder why God picked on me and gave me cancer. Maybe it was because he wanted me to be a doctor who takes care of kids with cancer. So when they say, Dr. Jason, sometimes I get so scared I'm going to die. Or you don't know how weird it is to be the only bald kid in your whole school. I can say, oh yes, I do. When I was a little boy, I had cancer too. And look at all my hair now. Someday your hair will grow back too. So we don't get to choose the circumstances that come. But we do get to choose the intention with which we meet them, the song that we bring to that circumstance. You know the story, many of you probably read this book long ago, Ishii in Two Worlds, the (laughs) Krobers, the anthropologist who were the befriended the last of this particular California tribe, and Ishii was the very last one, and he lived with them for a long time, um, and taught them all that he could about his people so that people wouldn't forget his community and the way they'd lived on this land in California and the um, language and the baskets and the games and all the things that he knew about the way their people had lived, their culture. And as he became very sick at the end of his life, and he taught them everything he could almost, he called them to his bed. There he was, almost ready to die. And he said, you know, there's one thing that I never taught to you, told you about our people, and that is the sacred song that's never allowed to be taught to anyone outside of our tribe because it is the song that when you sing it carries you to the land of my people after death. But now I am dying alone and I am the last of my tribe. So I have to entrust this to you as my friend, not to tell others, but I must teach you this song. And so he did. He taught them the one last song that he had never taught anyone so that they could sing him back to his people. I feel like we each have a song that we're given, a kind of melody of the heart. And, you know, sometimes there's a sadness in your song because 
you have suffered. But it's not necessarily bad that your song has sadness in it, because the earth suffers too. And that song can have a tremendous depth of meaning and compassion if we understand it and bring an intention to use it in a beautiful way. Or your song can have joy in it. But what matters after the things come to you that come that you have no control over is what song you bring to it, what spirit, what intention of the heart. It's also important to recognize that it's not just once. One does this over and over again, as Mother Teresa says, 42,000 times, you know. So there's the Buddha sitting under his tree of enlightenment. And he made the intention not to get up until he was freed, completely liberated, awakened, enlightened. And even in the course of that night, all the armies of Mara, all the difficulties that happen every time you sit. It's kind of amazing how Mara gets around. You know, you come to Woodacre, you close your eyes for 35 minutes, and all of a sudden Mara appears. Temptations, distraction, restlessness, anger, all the forms of Mara, all the armies of Mara appear to us as they did to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, I have made an intention to sit with the spirit of freedom no matter what arises over and over again. And in that came to a liberation beyond the small sense of self, what we might call the body of fear, to know that freedom that is your freedom as well, that is your birthright. That in a moment we can let go of the fears and confusions and awaken into a great space of freedom. No matter where you are, freedom is possible. Enlightenment is possible. But then, as Zen Master Suzuki says, what we're after is actually not enlightenment. What we're after is one enlightenment after another. So there you have it. But when you practice, one of the great practices in the Buddhist tradition is dream yoga, where you learn how to be aware when you fall asleep and as you dream. And it's quite a wonderful thing. Some of you may have done it, lucid dreaming. Um, It happens more frequently to people on long retreats and when the mind becomes very still and concentrated. But part of the training to do dream yoga, it's done, for example, as part of the curriculum in a long meditation retreat, is to recite to yourself over and over for day after day after day, regularly at different times, I will be awake, I will be aware when I fall asleep. I'll be awake in my dreams. I will be aware when I fall asleep. I will be awake in my dreams. And you set the intention over and over, many, many times a day. And then as you lie down to fall asleep, you set it again. And when the mind becomes concentrated and clear and pure, at some point, that intention becomes fulfilled. And you find yourself falling asleep. You go, oh, there's falling asleep. Here's the dream images, aware of all this. And then you begin to see that the whole world appears in consciousness that way. It's not just the dream of dreaming, but it's the dream that we're in now. This dream disappears and a different dream appears. And you think that I'm just talking about this. Wait till you die. You'll see. You'll be really surprised. Whoa, that was a life. Look at that. Phew. Through that one. Underneath these practices is the understanding of aditana, or determination, or intention, to make the intention 
that comes from the deepest wish of the heart. The intention to meet other beings with compassion, the intention to live in a conscious way, come what may. Um, A friend of mine was talking about going to Thanksgiving dinner coming up, and he's got a lot of conflict in his family. The siblings are in conflict with one another, and the parents and a couple of the siblings are in conflict, and you know how those family things are, and they can go on for a long time. And we talked about it, the same kind of spirit, because it's true in wise speech, however you do it. And I said, well, what are your intentions in going into this really difficult situation? And as he reflected about it, he said, well, my best intentions would be to have metta or loving kindness for each person wherever they are. And perhaps the intention to keep a spirit of friendliness, my heart open, listening, rather than some agenda, keep that spirit of friendliness no matter what happens. When you're speaking to people, one of the best places to study the power of intention is to notice in your conversation. Because you can look at somebody, you know, and maybe you're about to be in a, more of a conflict or you've started, you know, there's some kind of difficulty, and you can say, what did you mean? Or what did you say? Three little words, right? And they can have all kinds of tones, you know, like what did you say? Like it's, um, you know, was that an insult or, you know, you're a little bit annoyed and so forth. And you'll get a certain response from that. Or you can say the very same words without that tone of, you know, I'm going to prove I'm right and the aggression that's in it. Um, What did you say? What do you mean? Could you explain that? Where the same words are said, but the spirit is rather one of listening, one of wanting to understand. And the conversation will go in two entirely different directions. So what is the deepest intention when we find ourselves in situation. In the monastery, again, we would often start the morning with a recitation of our vows to not harm other beings and of gratitude, like Thanksgiving, but every day was Thanksgiving. With gratitude, we remember the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all whose joyful exertion blesses our life every day. With gratitude we remember the care and labor of a thousand generations of elders and ancestors who come before us. With gratitude we remember our family and friends, community, teachings, all that we've been given. Even in these recitations, gratitude for suffering that it might be the seed, the root of our awakening compassion. I mean, in some traditions, you pray for suffering. Grant that I be given enough suffering that my heart of compassion will truly open. Now, one of the things that's also important to understand in speaking about intention is its limits. 
even though one can set an intention, you can't be an apple seed and say, I want to be a mango tree. The intention has to be in harmony with who we are. It's like planting a seed in a garden. And you can water it and fertilize it and give it the proper temperature and so forth. But you can't set intention, I won't grow old. One of the Buddhist texts says, what are the kinds of intentions one cannot set? I will not grow old. Such an intention will have no benefit. I mean, Peter Pan might say it, but nobody else, right? (laughs) I will not die. You know, things will not change. I will set this in. This relationship won't change. Try that one. He said it would be like someone going to the Ganges River and trying to set fire to the water or taking a shovel and digging the earth and saying, I will dig up this whole earth. And what would that come to, said the Buddha? It would come to naught. And in such a way, an unskillful intention of that kind will not bring you anything. But the intention like gardening, water, fertilizer, and so forth, is to manifest what's possible for a human being. And that is what's possible for your own heart. What is the most beautiful thing that can grow out of your own heart? Compassion, liberation, freedom, joy. That your life be an expression of this is a wonderful intention. And only you can know how best to do that. Nobody else can ever tell you. I'm an artist. Let me tell you a story. When my daughter was born, after a difficult labor, we had an emergency cesarean operation. We were all worried. I was there at the hospital, and I remember talking with the doctor about what I did for a living. And the doctor confided in me. He said, I wish I'd been an artist, actually a musician, because I love to play concert piano. Later, after my wife had delivered the child, the doctor came out with good news that she was fine. We had a brand new baby girl. And we're standing there and I'm just reveling in the news and another doctor walks up to the physician who had just completed the cesarean surgery and delivered my child and said, excuse me, doctor, I just want to tell you that you perform brilliantly in there. It was an honor to assist you. So I turned back to the doctor and said, now tell the truth. You've just brought a new life into the world and saved another And you've had one of your colleagues tell you it's an honor to be in your presence. For heaven's sake, can you honestly say you wish you'd been a musician? The doctor grinned, nodded his head, and said, well, it went pretty well in there. We both laughed, and then he said, and I know exactly why, too. Because this morning I got up early, and for an hour I played Chopin at the piano. So the gift of intention, the dedication, is to fulfill your own true nature, to fulfill that which is beautiful in you. And to meditate is to let yourself get quiet and feel the potential freedom of heart and compassion, O nobly born, your true nature. And then to dedicate yourself to bring forth from that what is the most beautiful expression. And sometimes you have to practice and sometimes you make mistakes. The Dalai Lama at one point describing the dilemmas of the Tibetan people and all of his struggles with trying to deal with the Chinese Communist government and the tragedies that have happened there, said, I don't know if I have always made 
the right decision as the leader of my people. But the one thing that I can rely on is my sincere intention, my sincere motivation. This is what I can rely on. So important. If we are serious about peace, says Wendell Berry, then we must work for it as ardently and seriously and continuously and carefully and bravely as we have ever prepared for war. What is our intention as an individual, as a society, as a nation? When we sit in meditation, we discover the possibility of freedom, that all these different things come and go, but they're not who you really are. Just visiting thoughts, reruns, stories. You know, in one moment the story tells one thing, and you know how it is, a half an hour later the story can tell the other thing, right? And then they have a fight about it, you know, 45 minutes after that. So it helps not to take the mind too seriously. It has no pride. It will do anything, right? (laughs) And then your feelings, right? They come and they go, all the moods and emotions. But is that who we really are? Joy and sorrow and, you know, fear and blame and excitement and happiness and so forth, they come and go. There is a freedom that knows all of these, the space of awareness, the witnessing of the heart that says, yes, this too is human. Yes, this too. And in the midst of it comes this sense of freedom that we can set our intention. The Bodhisattva vows, no matter what happens, I commit myself to the awakening of all beings. Flannery O'Connor, the Irish author, tells of how as a boy he and his friends would make their way across the countryside, and when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too doubtful to try, too difficult to permit their voyage to continue, they would take off their hats and toss them over the wall, and then they had no choice but to follow them. (laughs) Make a big intention for your life. I mean, you've got a palette here. You've got paint, and, you know, you've got sheets of music, make some beautiful song. And this is the invitation of the freedom of heart, to set a beautiful intention, no matter what. Martin Luther King, Gandhi, remind us in their own ways. Let's see. Let our first act every morning be this resolve, says Gandhi. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone. I shall not submit to injustice from anyone. I shall conquer hatred by love and untruth by truth. And in resisting untruth, I shall put up with all suffering and bring freedom to all. That's quite an intention, huh? Or Martin Luther King, I'd like somebody to say on that day that Martin Luther King tried to give his life serving others. Someone to say on that day that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody, that I did try to feed the hungry. Yes, if you want to say I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace, for righteousness, 
I just want to leave a committed life behind. Now, there's a kind of danger in this talk because it could so easily turn into, on one side, judging yourself. Oh, compared to Gandhi, you know, or Martin Luther King or whatever. But you're not supposed to be Gandhi. And you're not supposed to be Martin Luther King. You are supposed to be yourself and make something beautiful wherever it happens to be that you are and work in your garden, in the business that you work in, in the community that you live in, with the neighbors and the school and the family and the society. That is, oh, nobly born, that is what is asked of you, to awaken in your place, to plant the seeds of awakening and to allow them to blossom and bloom. Nowhere else. And each of us somewhere really deeply knows this. If the element of awakening, enlightenment, were not in you, you would not be seeking to understand it. Because it is who you are. It is already awakening. It's too late for you. I mean, what are you going to do? Go back and practice greed and hatred and delusion a lot and cultivate it? You know it doesn't work. You're stuck. Right? It is too late. So you might as well stop pretending and plant something beautiful in your garden. When I traveled in India, one of the times I was there, I remember going to the um, ghats outside of Delhi, which are the memorial for Mahatma Gandhi. And there's this great big green lawn that stretches out to the river. Um, And the memorial doesn't have a great big monument in the middle. Rather, it has stone walls around the sides of this huge area where Gandhi's body had been cremated. And carved into the stone walls are a number of his words, really immortal words. Um, And in the center are the words where Gandhi says, before you act, if you are confused or have difficulty knowing what to do, think of the poorest person you have met and ask yourself, will this act be of any benefit to them? It's a challenge to us in a way, but it also is an expression of his intention. And yours might have a different song and a different word to it. I don't know what your intention is. And no one can know. It's partly why one meditates to listen deeply in the heart, this heart of freedom that is here, that knows what's possible to make of this life. And then you have to do it over and over again to remind yourself to dedicate yourself, as in the dream yoga, again and again until it becomes the, the theme, the melody, the song that we bring to our life. <coughs> but there really is something beautiful in your heart that wants to come out, that wants to express itself. And spiritual life, then, is the invitation that this might really blossom, bear fruit. Let's sit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.